Hi, listeners. Welcome to episode four of Penned. The past three episodes have shared different voices and perspectives. First, there was Joe, the romantic who traveled along the Pacific Northwest to drench his paper with the smell of waterfalls before sending to his inmate in Texas. Then there was Frank, a native German man who, throughout his dating struggles, managed to find love with a woman who was incarcerated in Florida. In episode three, I shared several voices from men and women who have written to Tony, my brother, during his time in prison. Now, while I've only shared three episodes with you so far, my hope is that you've begun to notice what I have over these past few months. That a prison pen pal isn't one size fits all. I recently received an email from a listener, Samantha, or Sam, who is interested in sharing her story with me. She's been writing to prisoners for close to a decade now, so her experiences have run the gamut. From people asking her for financial support to deep and solid friendships. She explained to me that she tries to support more women who are in the system by writing to them and learning more about their experiences. She makes a point to write to marginalized women who are overrepresented in the prison system, trans women, LGBTQ women, and women of color. The story Sam is about to share involves a man named Michael Shane Hale, or Shane as she calls him. He is currently serving a 50-year sentence in a New York State prison for murder. When Sam mentioned his name in the email, I knew it sounded familiar, but I wasn't sure where I'd heard it before. After some research, I realized this was a high-profile murder case in New York in the 90s. I'd been living there at the time, and his case had garnered a lot of media coverage. Sam and Shane's story is a great example of what happens when someone decides to check their judgments at the door and learn to see beyond the crime. Just connecting, human to human. I'm Christina Hansen, and this is Pent. I'm a journalist, and I have been for quite a while. I think I was telling you I've covered a lot of court cases. So, so it's interesting seeing, seeing things from the other side. Do you feel like your interaction with writing inmates and learning more about what the goings on in the prison system and what they have to deal with and their day-to-day struggles, has that helped shape how you cover stories? Has that helped you just give a perspective or maybe ask different questions? What has that brought to you as far as a perspective goes? That's a really interesting question, and I I will try not to go too deep down the nerdy journalism wormhole here. You have, let's say, a New York Times reporter who's sitting in a courtroom. He's listening, and, and all he has is what the police have told him and what the testimony is coming from the stand, which more often than not is usually led by the prosecutor. You know, the prosecutor is sort of asking the questions and getting the answers that he wants. You don't have the ability to go much beyond the facts of the case. So when you read the facts of a case, it reads a lot different compared to when you know all the nuance behind it. I guess it just heightened my awareness of the fact that there's a complete other side to this story, multiple sides to the story. and So it did heighten my awareness of that. You know, I want to know how you started to write Inmates and kind of take me through what sparked an interest in doing that? 
I came across to write a prisoner because I like to write fiction. I like to write short fiction. And I had this patriarch of this like fake family I was writing about who was in a prison in upstate New York. So I was just doing, you know, like that thing that writers do. I was just Googling and Googling and Googling, trying to find like what an average day in the life of a prisoner would be and what it would be like to be in there, what a cell looked like. And somehow through going down this Google wormhole, I came across Shane's ad on Write a Prisoner. And I was just immediately drawn to it. I thought, yeah, like, why, why don't I do that? just seemed perfect to me. What drew me to his ad was he just kind of sounded like a neat guy. For one thing, he mentioned right off the bat what he was in for. Like he, he was very upfront about his crime and he said, I did a terrible thing. I'm trying to better myself and I'm trying to better myself in the following ways. And he actually did like a bulleted list of everything he was up to. And he used the word calisthenics which really charmed me. He's like, I'm trying to better myself through calisthenics because I hadn't heard that word since like fourth grade or something. So I thought, I'm going to write this guy and it worked out. So. And can you tell me about his crime? He is in for second degree murder. He was in a, uh, a domestic relationship with this older man and they got in this huge fight and he killed him. It was a really intense crime. And I think he'd be the first to tell you that. I should mention, too, his sentence is life with possibility for parole when he's in his 70s. (laughs) How old is he now? He's in his 40s. When the crime happened, he was in his early 20s. I think it's been, um, it was in the early 90s. So I think he's been in there 25, 26 years. Wow. So, yeah, that's absolutely his normal now. Yeah. It's almost been, he's probably in prison longer than he has been out of prison at this point. Yeah, I guess you're right. That's that's wild to think about. You know, you mentioned that his profile charmed you in some way. And were you at, at any point turned off by the fact that he had killed somebody? No, because, I mean, yes, it's obviously a terrible crime. I think I sort of got over that mentally while I was sitting there and processing, you know, am I going to write this letter I think I sort of got over it very quickly. I knew going into it that I was going to be talking to someone who had this history. By writing to prisoners, that's sort of what you're signing up for. You're signing up for people who have done things that you can't imagine doing, who who have these complex histories, and people who have experiences that are sort of nothing like you. So no, I, I think I sort of accepted it and went into it knowing that. And how long ago was that? I think it was June 2010. You really do get to know somebody through letter writing. How has your relationship progressed from the first letter to now? I think there's something about the actual act of putting a pen to paper. And it's almost like linking directly into someone's brain. It is. It's sort of an interesting intimacy and an interesting sort of, we call it our space, if you will, we say like, here, here we are in our space, you know, which is a sort of lack of judgment. And right off the bat, when I started writing to him, I, I kind of used that. And I'm like, let's create this little space because I knew that the environment that he was in wasn't one where you can show a lot of vulnerability. It wasn't really a comfortable one. I think you very quickly within the first two or three letters, you develop this sort of trust in this sort of acceptance when you're writing a letter to someone we've just become 
good friends. It's it's one of the most interesting and deep friendships that I have in my life. I've visited him quite a few times. So obviously we've got to know each other face to face. He was in upstate New York. He was about two and a half hours away from me when I first started to write to him. And I think I went to meet him probably about a year and a half into writing to him. It, it was just sort of a spur of the moment thing. I thought, I'm going to do this, you know, because I, like most people, I think had never been to a prison, had never visited a prison. And I just sort of spontaneously thought, I'm going to do this because it's going to be interesting and it's going to be an adventure and it's going to be terrifying, which it was. But yeah, so for the first two or three years, I think he was pretty close. He was about two and a half hours. I actually had had times where I had done the trip there and back in a day. Now he's in Sing Sing, so he's about seven and a half hours away. So if I go to see him, I usually take about three days. So I usually take a day to drive down there, a day to drive back, and then a day to visit him. And then I do a New York City thing that night. You said something just earlier that kind of struck me a little bit. And it was about visiting him for the first time was terrifying. And I think I can relate to that because I've gone to visit my brother in prison before. And for people and, and for our listeners who haven't been to a prison or have any experience or interaction with that, you know, would you mind explaining just the, the process of the visitation and why that's terrifying? When you only communicate with someone via letters, you're locked in. If you say, I'm going to be there on this date, you have to be there on that date. So I drove down there by myself and I remember I got there at night to, to Auburn, which is just this little town in upstate New York. The first thing I did was drive to the prison, which obviously I couldn't do the visit. I just wanted to get a look at it. And I remember sitting there in this parking lot in the dark, and it just looked like this giant hulking dark piece of Lego. <laughs> It was just this giant rectangular, I mean, all prisons are like that. They're just mammoth, but it almost looked like a fortress. Just the size and the shape and the bulk of the thing was intimidating. I remember the first day that I went to visit. First of all, there's a process. There's a whole lot of little, you have to do this at this time and this at this time and fill out this form. And, and so when you walk into it, you know, just sort of as an outsider, it's daunting. So I remember I walked in and I filled, you know, like you have to fill out a form if you take them a package and you have to fill out a form to visit. You might fill out the form wrong or something and you're dealing with people who work there. You're dealing with guards who see a billion people a day. So they're just sort of stone-faced and, and just sort of very intimidating. It's their job. Although Auburn, I have to say, there were a couple guards who were quite lovely. So you have to walk in and you have to fill out the form and then you have to walk up and you stand there and you wait for them to look at you and acknowledge you. And when they do, they have these sort of flat eyes and you, you go to talk and you sort of stammer. And, and there's a certain sense when you visit someone in prison, I think sometimes. I've always felt it. Like by virtue of visiting an inmate, you've also done something wrong. <laughs> You know, like you sort of walk in there feeling guilty and you don't really know why. And then when you go through the metal detector, which is as intense as any airport. I know in Auburn, they, they had a thing where every few people, they would do an ionic scan. So they would scan your hands. They would, you know, so it was quite intense. And you have to find a bra that has no metal. 
which is almost impossible. Any, anyway, so you just kind of go through this whole thing where you feel sort of small and, and, and meek. And yeah, so it's daunting, you know, and sometimes they scrutinize what you're wearing. And, uh, yeah. I think, you know, you and I have chatted a bit before about being a woman and going to a prison. It's one of those things that unless you experience it, you don't know what you don't know. When I've gone to visit my brother, I've worn, you know, yoga pants and a long sweater and sneakers. And and you mentioned a bra with no wire. Well, you know, that's not the most easy thing to find nowadays. And it seems to make the process even harder. Did you find that when you went there and for the first time as well? I did, yeah. Because like you said, finding a bra without wire, I think you could go to a lot of forums of people who visit people in prison, a lot of forums for people who have loved ones in prison, and that issue will come up because it's a tough one. You can't wear a shirt that has any sort of V-neck or anything. Um, I think I was mentioning to you that I have a shirt that I wore a couple of times with absolutely no incident. And then I went one time and it was a different guard. And he said, when I bent over to take my shoes off, you could to go through the scanner, you could see down my shirt and he wouldn't let me in. And, and, and yeah, it's just, it's just the sort of, it almost feels like a moving target. You know, you wear something one day and it's fine. You wear something another day and it's not. So when I go to visit him, I'm with people who I think are related to or in relationships with, the people they're visiting. So I sort of go in and I'm standing in this long line and, and it's a lot of it is women. So I guess we all go through the same thing, right? Did those experiences of you going to visit and having to deal with things like the metal detector and the judgment, and did that give you a perspective of what Shane might be going through in prison on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, it does because I think everybody assumes at least I would hope that a lot of people assume that they are people of value, that they're worthy of kindness or taking up space on the planet. So I imagine what I feel and what Shane feels. I'm sure what Shane feels. It's worth noting, too, that before Shane was convicted and sent to prison, I, as far as I know, he didn't have a criminal record prior to that. When he went to prison... I think this was as foreign an experience for him as it is for me to go visit him, you know. But yeah, I assume that everyone who's in prison feels some element of that. There's a real element of you're treated like a number and your background doesn't matter and people interact with you going into it with the worst assumptions. I imagine that's a feeling that you get very used to in prison and it's just sort of your day-to-day that you're sort of treated like that, you know, sort of like this member of this throng, you know. How was it meeting him for the first time after corresponding for, you know, a year and a half writing letters? How did that feel meeting him in person? It was incredibly nerve wracking because I had never met him. I had never been in a prison. I'm sitting there surrounded by all of these couples who are cuddling, families who are playing cards, all of these people who are so used to this environment that it's just another Saturday for them. You know, they're going to the vending machines. So I just sat there with my hands folded on the table and with my stomach in knots because I'd never met him. And uh, you just sort of sit and sit and wait and wait and wait and look at the door. And then he comes through. And I had seen a picture of him on the right of prisoner site. So I knew what he looked like, but 
he walked up and hugged me and we sat down and there was that little thrill of, you know, meeting someone that you've been writing to for a while, that little, wow, here you are. But, um, but, but we found things to talk about very quickly. I think I mentioned to you one of the things that's so invigorating about visiting someone, if I can use that word for it, invigorating, is that there are absolutely no distractions. He doesn't have a cell phone. He's never had a cell phone. He's never been on the internet. And I think now, in a way that we don't realize, and in a gradually increasing way, we're always distracted when we interact with each other. We, we have lunch with someone, we have dinner with someone, our phones are on the table. Very quickly, we'll Google something. When I visit him and we're just sitting there and there are no phones and no distractions, he really pays attention to what I'm saying, which is a little bit of a thrill. Just to have someone just sit there and listen to you completely and to sit there and listen to someone completely. It's something that his reality, but we don't realize, you know, living in 2019 the way we do. So it was very thrilling to have that, to just be sitting there and having this conversation that was immediately real because there were no distractions. And very quickly, it sort of became like it was in the letters. And it's interesting because every time I visit him, it's always the equivalent of like 10 letters all at once. And sometimes because I know we're going to just be sitting there with no distractions, no playing cards, no nothing, just sitting there. Sometimes as I'm driving there, I'll sort of compile a list of things in my head. Okay, I want to talk about this and I want to talk about this and I want to talk about this because the six hours or so goes by very quickly. So I, I want to make sure that I that we have things to talk about and also that I that we talk about everything that I have in my head. <laughs> so do you think that has helped shape your friendship with him? I mean, you said that you consider him one of your closest friends. Do you think that's one of the reasons why is because you've gotten to know him on this level that's completely different from any of your friends on the, you know, quote outside? Yes, I absolutely think that's the case. When we are sitting there for five or six hours and we have no distractions, I find it's almost like the equivalent of like three weekends in outside time. When you do see friends, you a lot of times you go see a movie or you, you have dinner or you have some sort of inter intermediary activity that sort of prevents you from getting real. And with him, like we just get real immediately. I think part of that too is, I, I mean, he's a very deep thinker and um, he's got a lot of insight into things. He can go beyond small talk anyway. I do think that environment has something to do with it. I always write him a letter immediately after I leave just because I'm sort of in the uh, zone. But I do remember after I left because he had existed in this little town in upstate New York, like that's where he physically was, but he had never really seen that town aside from, you know, arriving and, and then eventually departing. And, and he went to Sing Sing, by the way, because he he wanted the he wanted to get into the master's program. That's why he transferred. But yeah, he existed in this little picturesque town, you know, in the Finger Lakes region, but he had never actually seen it. When I did leave, I remember I wrote an extensive letter about what the town looked like and sort of describing my experience on the highway and I get off the highway and I go down the road and this is what this road looks like. And, you know, I went to the Chili's and this is what I ate and, <laughs> you know, so I did do some of that. Now you mentioned he transferred to Sing Sing because of a master's program. Could you tell me a little bit more about that? He's super active in prison. The things that he gets up to while I'm sitting here watching Netflix are amazing. Because while he was in, in Auburn, I know that he was 
one of the founding members of this theater group and they they did a lot of plays a lot of monologues that were sort of therapeutic for them and 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 he was was a facilitator of this alternatives to violence prevention program he's quite active in the veterans association he's he i think did a did a newsletter i know he still does a newsletter he got some of his education a lot of it is donated or or volunteered by some fantastic people and i know that at um at auburn a lot of his education i think all of his education came from uh cornell university which isn't very far away and at sing sing i'm not sure who offers it i know it's a similar sort of program do you feel like there are times where you want to tell him something and you go to write a letter and you wish that you could just pick up the phone and give him a call? I've never been able to pick up the phone and give him a call. So I don't think so only because it's never happened. So it's never been sort of in my brain that way. I always pick up the pen and write a letter. And honestly, I I think the picking up the pen and writing the letter is part of what about the friendship thrills me, you know, like the, the actual medium of, of getting to write a letter. Do you think your experience with writing to inmates and not just Shane, but the others that you've written to, uh, do you think that's shaped how you view the, the criminal justice system? Yeah. I have noticed that the sentencing in some states can be kind of intense. <laughs> so I have become increasingly aware of that. Yeah, Absolutely mandatory minimums, you know, a lot of drug charges, things like that, or, you know, carry a lot of weight. And when somebody is sentenced, then that's it. And that's the rest of their life. You know, I thought about my own experience with my my brother being involved with the justice system. And it's really kind of shaped my views on things. And that's why I really love to focus on the human connection, because at the end of the day, we're all human. And take Shane, for example, he committed this crime and, you know, it sounds like it was a crime of passion and, you know, in the moment and he's young and, you know, here he is 20 some odd years later with a lot of regret and remorse. And he, I'm sure he carries that weight of that every single day. That's one part of him. There's so many other parts of him, like you just said. And I think, you know, being able to focus on that and view these inmates as people is, you know, it's something special and that's something that I'm hoping to share with the world and, People can learn from that and grow from that and hopefully not be so quick to judge. I've noticed when it comes to this subject, the subject of people who are in prison and how they're treated. And um, I, I've noticed that from some people, not everybody, some people, it can inspire a really kind of emotional, almost guttural reaction. And I, I've given a lot of thought over the years as to why that is. I think it helps us to to be able to say, well, I, you know, I'm not a bad person because I'm not that, or I haven't done that, or I'm not that person. But when you think about it, there really is not a whole lot of difference between all of us as, as human beings, you know? Over the years, Michael Shane Hale has been interviewed by The New York Times, The New Yorker, and The Auburn Citizen. He's had the opportunity to discuss his academic achievements, his theater troupe, and prison advocacy. He was recently featured in a New Yorker story that covered a New York state policy change 
which places restrictions on book shipments to inmates. Shane explains how this policy will impact his ability to receive textbooks for a Chinese class he's currently enrolled in. I'm working with Sam to get in touch with Shane for an interview. I think he will bring a fresh perspective to Penn. So stay tuned. This episode was written by me, Christina Hansen, and produced by Jason Zasoya. Special thanks to Matthew Street for writing and creating Penn's theme music. If you or anyone you know has a story to share, please contact me on our website at pendpodcast.com.